When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for checking out the first episode of this podcast. I am Justin Cox. This show is mostly for lovers of Jackson Brown's music, but it's not only for that. If you like his contemporaries or if you like one or two songs, I think there's going to be something you can find. So I will say that some of these episodes were recorded before the coronavirus entered our uh, mainstream lexicon. This episode in particular did not. This one was recorded a few days after we were all told to start spending more time in our homes. But a few days before Jackson Brown himself came out and said that he had tested positive for coronavirus. Um, I named this podcast before all of this happened, but it weirdly to me has taken on some kind of worthwhile meaning because the, uh, the bulk of the episodes are going to come out while this is all happening. The definition of deluge is to inundate with a great quantity of something. And this song paints basically like a world ravaging tragedy with the characters in it sort of left trying to sort out the mess and figure out what you do next. But you get this kind of beautiful respite in the chorus that says, Let the music keep our spirits high Let the buildings keep our children So this is a weird time to talk about anything other than the thing that's occupying pretty much all of our brain space. But at the risk of sounding corny, I think that getting into some music can keep your spirits high. And um, this could be a good place to come do that. So I'm going to put out an episode a week over the next little while. And so today we start with his first album, which is technically called Self-Titled, but commonly referred to as Saturate Before Using as well. This album was released in 1972, and it's Jackson Brown's first studio album. It peaked at number 53 on the Billboard chart, and the single Doctor My Eyes peaked at number 8. So something I'll be doing for all these episodes from the 70s is looking back at the original Rolling Stone album reviews. These reviews exist independent of everything that comes after them. And I think there's just something cool about that. This is a person reviewing someone's album that came out in 1972, and that's it. I will interject some thoughts along the way, but mostly I'll just let the review carry the intro until I introduce our guest for today. These are pulled from a review by Bud Scopa, and I apologize if I'm mispronouncing that. Brown's voice is uncolored, except for a bluegrass nasality. It's not a particularly powerful voice either, but it's quite flexible. It lends his vocal style an endearing, innocent earnestness that enables Brown to deal with overtly romantic themes without ever coming across as self-conscious or precious. To me, this is totally true. This is an album that makes no attempt to show off. It's just a collection of 10 songs that all stack right alongside each other so perfectly. And Jackson Brown's voice is, it's almost like the limit on his voice is is an asset. And I adore it. And the crazy thing about that is that his voice is amazing. His voice is really good. It's just not the kind of voice that you say is 
the most amazing voice ever. I would never argue that Jackson Brown has one of the best voices in music, but I would very, very easily argue that he has one of my favorite voices in music, and I think that's the best way I can put it. Jamaica Say You Will, the opening track, is an exquisite love song, and it perfectly embodies Brown's writing and performing approach. This narrative of relationship between the singer and Jamaica, the daughter of a long-absent sailor, vividly confirms Richard Goldstein's 1968 perception that, quote, Jackson writes with rocky seacoasts in his head, unquote. The reviewer basically spends the next, like, half of the review talking specifically about Jamaica Say You Will, which I found at first a little weird, but then as I read, it was like what he was basically doing was unpacking Jamaica Say You Will so that he could then make a point about the album as a whole. And I think his point is good. So I actually enjoyed it in that way. And it's the kind of thing that like, eh, you kind of maybe wanted to hear about some more songs, but I also respect the writer's choice for approaching it that way. Either way, to round out the review, it's romantic in the best sense of the term. His songs are capable of generating a highly charged, compelling atmosphere and of sustaining that pitch long after they've ended. Don't miss it. And so my guest today is William Matheny, who is an excellent singer-songwriter from West Virginia whose connection to Jackson Brown runs decades deep. We had a super cool conversation about not only this album, but his music in general and how it shaped our own thoughts about songwriting. And you will also hear one of his songs in full at the end of this interview. So stick around for that. For updates about this podcast, you can visit anchor.fm slash after the deluge. Hey, you can follow me on Twitter at routine layup. And if you're really enjoying the show, you can go to patreon.com slash after the deluge to support it and get some very cool bonus content. There is a link in the show description. Here's our conversation. William, welcome. Good to be here. So this is obviously Jackson Brown's first album. I'm recording it now as we've all been um, self-quarantining for a few days. This Every episode I recorded prior to this was at least two weeks ago. Okay. So our our reality is totally different. How are you doing with all this? Oh, I'm, I'm hanging in there. Um, at the risk of trivializing what anyone could possibly be going through, uh, this feels like a pretty appropriate record to uh, discuss at a very, very strange time in America. They're appropriate to a moment like this, even though there's no way you're even conceiving of a viral pandemic. Sure. There's something about this record that has always really seemed, uh, and, and I don't think this is actually a particularly uncommon read of his first you know, handful of records. The songs must sound like they're taking place after some grave disaster has, you know, wiped out the grid or something. Um, like it, it, they sound like just the people in them are kind of like they've had to be, like become agrarian again, and they're just uh, kind of scratching by for survival or something. Yeah, it's like this: we're occupying this wasteland. What are we going to do now? And you're right; it continues on to like for every man and before the deluge and and those albums all kind of have a, a vibe of that. Right. I think this is the only one that that vibe continues uninterrupted for the whole 40 minutes. Cause like, you know, for every man you've got like, you know, redneck friend and like some, some kind of fun rockers and, and late for the sky feels a little more modern. Like it sounds like 
people in the 1970s uh uh, addressing their lives at that time, but it's like there's there's just something about this record that feels like it's really kind of in its own space, and it could be happening at any point in history, almost. No, totally. Even like you have like one of his biggest pop hits ever in Doctor My Eyes, ending with a chorus with "Is this a price for having learned how not to cry?" That song reads way differently if you're listening to it in the context of the record, too. Like it really. It can stand alone, obviously, as like a big pop hit, which it was. But when you listen to it um, in in the album, it totally makes sense with the rest of that kind of like really dark, you know, after a disaster theme. Yeah, I you kind of alluded to it on For Every Man. That's the last one I recorded. Um, and it has these amazing moments. But like you said, it kind of it feels disjointed in its way. Whereas, as you're alluding to now, this one feels like it. it it manages to have a thread that ties through all of it. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's all kind of of a piece for sure. We can go wherever we want to go with this, but I'll go to sort of the start of the album. Like, I just love that you get Jamaica Say You Will and A Child in These Hills and A Song for Adam before you get that Doctor My Eyes because it's sort of like, I mean, people knew who Jackson Brown was before this, but it's his first album, and it's sort of like, it tells you three things about him before it says, I'm like aspiring to be a pop hit maker like the Eagles or something like that, you know? Yeah, it's a, it's an album that doesn't really meet people halfway, um, which I always have a lot of respect for uh, as, you know, as an artist, like I, I'm really attracted to things that, you know, they don't necessarily need you as a listener, you know, yeah. as a listener, we maybe need it a little more than it needs us. And in the case of this, it really, really rewards hard listening. And honestly, like the first the first time I listened to this record, I didn't really get it. I was 16, I think. And I had uh, recently kind of gotten into like running on empty as a record. And you know, that one is, is really, really accessible and there's like a lot of fun stuff on it, even though it's, you know, it's still a Jackson Brown record. So there's plenty of, of substance even to the, you know, even to the pop tunes. But so this was the next one I bought and, uh, it seemed like so austere to me. And I mean, it is, but it was just not something that I really kind of like, I don't think my teenage brain really grasped it immediately. Um, but I stuck with it and, it, you know, like within a few months, like it, it all made a lot of sense to me then. But, you know, Jamaica Say You Will is definitely um, one of the more accessible songs on the record, even though it's, I love, I love an album that can kind of sort of start with, uh, with a ballad like that. Jamaica Say You Will Help me find a the idea that Jamaica Say You Will is like some hard on the ears entry is not the case, but it's still that followed by those next two songs. It's like there's a certain type of listener who's going to going to drop off at that point and maybe just not ever come back, you know? Well, um, well yeah, I mean, there, there, and there's like a really some great scene setting with the whole thing, too. Like it, it it sort of sounds like it's maybe taking place like in some sort of like harbor town, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Then, you know, you know, Jamaica Say You Will followed literally by like a child in these hills looking for water. And then, you know, I, I read some interviews about, like, who the song, you know, Song for Adam is about. But I guess they're probably describing what sort of sounds like maybe little more than, like, you know, gap year, I went to England kind of stuff, you know. 
or, you know, like people in their late teens and early 20s kind of like discovering the world and getting to travel and do all these things. But I don't know. The song makes it sound like it's just a, a lot more of like a serious kind of dark journey. I don't need a song to make total sense for me to enjoy it. It can be, it can sort of abstractly make me feel something. And I'm by, if anything, I love that. Of course. Yeah. But song for Adam kind of feels like the first moment that I get like a, a very literal story. And the, the, the chorus isn't the chorus is the candle and all of that. But the, the verses are just, he's telling a story about a tra- uh, some traveling he did with a person whose life was lost. And I don't, right. I, I could be, like one Google search away from having an answer to this question, but it's almost like I don't necessarily want it. I sit before my only candle But it's so little light to find my way Now this story unfolds before my candle which is He does a similar thing on... on uh, something fine with like the future hides and the past just slides and England lies between like England oh, and, and you say Morocco and that made me smile. Like those are, uh, those are clearly places, but those are also stand-ins for experiences and probably people. And it's just, he's really young and writing. That's just great writing. I, I love it. Yeah. It, it was a, a record that honestly, like his, his youth, the more I, I learned about it, when I was, like I said, I was I was 16 when I got into this record, and it's an album that was kind of made by someone who was not that much older than me, really. Yeah, he was early 20s. I was a little confused at first because he wrote these days as like a 16, 17-year-old. Yeah, like I, I kind of just got obsessed with, with how someone could really find like that kind of wisdom so quickly. As you describe that, I'm curious, you are a talented writer and songwriter and musician re-listening to this as you started learning and writing or I had kind of my dad's old record collection, which, you know, was something that I'd kind of been pilfering through my whole life. Um, but in particular, like he, you know, he got it back out and he said like, you, you really should listen to running on empty. And he told me this story about when that album came out, he had just graduated from high school and he was pretty, um, you know, he told me he was kind of feeling pretty aimless about a lot of things. And he, uh, um, you know, his life didn't really fit into kind of like a college scenario and in the same way that mine didn't either. And he was working this crappy job at a supermarket and his uh, grandfather had just died. And he just told me about coming home every day and just listening to Running on Empty. You know, I, I didn't really get into it with like that same kind of like uh, I, I really hesitate to say depressive reasons, but it, it, it there wasn't really like uh, there wasn't any emotional bloodletting for me with that record. Like it was just an album I liked. Like I loved, you know, David Lindley's work on it. And like, that was really sort of my gateway to all of like the mellow mafia session guys who um, are huge reference points for me and the guys in my band. Like we're, you know, we're always kind of trying to make the drums yeah. sound a little more like Russ Kunkel, you know? Um, but, uh, it, shortly after that, I, uh, my uncle passed away and also the band that I was in at the time broke up and, um, I, I just, I didn't really have a lot of structure in my life for a few months, kind of while I was waiting to, 
to figure out what I was going to do next, which was, you know, kind of join the first band that I was in that was like a serious thing that was recording music and trying to tour and, and all of that stuff, which was really what I wanted to be doing with my life. But I, I don't know, I sort of accidentally found myself in a pretty, you know, uh, I hesitate to say dark. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to oversell anything, but like it was, you know, a pretty downer period for me. And I got into this record, uh, I guess much in the same way my dad got into running on empty, like, you know, 30 years before that or so. Yeah. It's just, it's really kind of been with me ever since. And, and all, and all of those records have, and I think he, he's just a a brilliant, brilliant writer that I, I just, I don't think is, if it's possible for someone that popular to be underrated, like, I just don't feel like he's really in the conversation enough. Yeah. That's, uh, that's really part of the conceit of this podcast, which I'm very aware of the fact that he is a popular musician, but he's not like Bob Dylan or Neil Young. And he's not a gigantic pop act like the Eagles or Bruce Springsteen. He's somewhere in this, other thing that is kind of both but is and is really 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 good at both and the people who like him tend to have stories like you just told about your dad and yourself they they have this thing that almost feels like it personally belongs to them their discovery process Uh, and all that he tells a story and you can kind of hear it in like the the kind of bouncing of that piano key the like thing Doctor, my eyes have seen the years and the slow parade of fears without crying. Now I want to understand. I have done all that I could. But like he was sitting at a piano that had like a broken hammer on its key. And so like when you take it down, when you'd, you'd hit the chord on the piano, it wouldn't stay and just sustain. It would kind of rock back and forth and sort of bang multiple times and so he just sort of played that song to that rhythm and wrote the song around that which is just a as far as origin stories for the writing of a song go like I can identify with kind of catching a very small groove and writing that into to writing something more but the idea of a broken piano key sort of paving the initial steps that would become a song like Dr. My Eyes is just is nothing cooler than that I love that there's a scene have you, have you seen that Eagles documentary yeah I loved it Oh, I loved it too. It's like eight hours long, and yeah. I I just love. It was great. Uh, they may not be my favorite band to listen to all of the time, but they're one of my favorite bands to think and talk about. The, um, the Eagles very much have a place. First of all, they have a place in my heart, and then they're also a band. They're a band that I love in a lot of places and can't stand in a lot of ways. And honestly, they're kind of a through line through this whole. Uh, podcast series. I mean, how, could they, how could they not be? But you know, at the end of the day, fuck the haters. Those guys ruled. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, they can say fuck the Eagles. We say fuck the haters. Fuck the Eagles haters. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, um, but uh, anyway, there was just like a bit where like, I like that, that scene where Glenn Fry is talking about living like above or below Jackson Brown at the time. And it was like, you know, they were both pretty unknown guys, but like talking about just that discipline where like he would hear the tea kettle go off and then like he'd play, you know, a verse of Jamaica, say you will, and then play that same verse again and that same verse again. And then eventually something came to him. And uh, I don't know, like, I mean, those kinds of stories are not uh, probably far more ordinary than Keith Richards writing satisfaction in his sleep, but uh you know, most great things probably occur like that, really, that 
Like it's just someone grinding it out until, until inspiration occurs. You know, I love, I don't know. I just, that kind of like, I love the seventies California record making. Like it's uh there's, there's just something pretty great about everything kind of made during that era that I can't really, I can't really understand. There's like this magic dust all over the, the console or maybe I, maybe I mean that literally it's probably just cocaine. <laughs> probably, uh, all the things can be true. Uh, actually, I was going to ask about that. You're so you're from West Virginia, and was your dad right. also in West Virginia at that time? Yeah, when yeah. You... My my uh, um, I, I go I go way back in West Virginia. Um, uh, I'm not like a huge genealogy guy, but uh, I think at least on my dad's side of the family, I know they they go back to like 1870 or something like that wow. that I know about. So I grew up in California, first Southern California, then Northern California. I, I, I was going to ask. California's shaking like an angry child will, who has asked for love and is unanswered still. And I don't know, know, I used to like, I was a teenager and I loved listening to like, uh, like The Strokes or The Velvet Underground because they made me feel like a cooler guy. Like it made me feel like, like an urban New York dude, you know? And yeah. Which is just ridiculous because, like, I bought these albums, like, at convenience stores and at the mall in West Virginia. And I was <laughs> driving around in, like, a geo tracker, you know? <laughs> but, you know, and, but, like, those albums always felt like that to me. And, like, and I think, like, a sense of place is really, really, you know, a wonderful thing when music has that. And, yeah, like, those Jackson Brown records, like, it feels, it feels like the West Coast to me. Like in the same way that like Rumors does or um, like a Judy Sill album or something like that. And I guess I can I'm I'm there and I'm from California. And so I, it, it feels a little less so to me. But I still have like I've romantically read about like all this, the, that scene around the Troubadour and all these songwriters. And I guess the way I don't see it is like, oh, it's a California record. I see it as like, a oh, this was like a thing happening in Laurel Canyon in Los Angeles around this specific oh, yeah. club and all these songwriters. So I guess I have my own version of it. It's just like I'm already in California, so I'm the microscope is down on where in California. Sure, and like that was obviously a really special time with a lot of really really great things happening. You know, something fine was one of my original favorite Jackson Brown songs. Just oh yeah, man that that line. Um, you know I'm looking back carefully because I know there's still something there for me. Like. God damn. And you know that I'm looking back carefully. Cause I know that there's still something there for me. Yeah, there's actually a lot of lines in that song that that's oh, that's another yeah. one. That's another one. It's like I I you're very very deliberately not telling me everything, but you're telling me just enough to make me want to know so much more and it's just like, how, how in God's name do you have so much in this one song that is just <laughs> amazing? Whereas Weirdly Under the Fallen Sky was one that like later became a favorite song of mine. Like, And it's really fun to play, and it's just a super cool groove. I love that song. I love the use of like congas on on all, all these records, really. Like, I think he... Uh... Um, you know, the jam bands kind of took the, took the congas from us, but, um, there's like some really, really great, great uses there that, 
you know, I feel like a lot of like the seventies, like singer songwriter records had some excellent stuff happening with that. But in particular, like there's some really, really good ox percussion happening there. Under the falling sky, easily we will lie while I bring it to you. It's a low road, a high wire going to meet you. And in your eyes, the distance left is closing. I got a feeling in my ocean. It's like texture and vibe and stuff, not necessarily like your start to finish rhythm or something. Well, yeah, and you kind of get like an extra layer of it, so it, it's kind of neat. Like it, it's the kind of thing that you maybe don't always like. You, you feel it more than you hear it, and yeah. um, I, I love those kinds of things because if, if they aren't there, you know, you, you're going to notice it. It's easy to think of him, or I don't know, what would you? This is like kind of a dumb exercise sometimes, but what would you? What kind of music would you say Jackson Brown plays? Like, like for example, like he's a folk musician, he's a rock musician, he's singer-songwriter what 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 would be your answer to that question well honestly like i really um i kind of love the answer singer-songwriter because it doesn't imply genre yeah and and that's sort of the the same reason um not to talk about myself but it's the it's the reason why that's kind of my preferred term for what i do uh i really like the the term singer-songwriter because it it just it's just the format of it like this is just someone who's you know playing songs ostensibly so, you know, by that same notion, like Bob Marley is a singer songwriter and yeah. Bruce Springsteen is a singer songwriter. And, uh, I don't know, Kurt Cobain was too, or, or just about anyone you could like really think. And so I think it doesn't really like pin you into, to really anything. Like it just That's means good... that like, as long as I'm doing what I'm doing, like I can go wherever I want with it at a certain point, like the really great stuff just kind of becomes its own genre. Really. It's like Tom Petty's sort of like a genre unto himself, you know, or, um, in the way that like Patsy Cline was a genre unto herself or, you know, Paul McCartney means a lot of things to a lot of people. I kind of entered in thinking of him as like a folk musician. I don't know why. I think I just thought like, Oh, he's a person either with an acoustic guitar in his lap or sitting at a piano and he's writing these songs. But like you were talking about the congas, like they're like sort of production moments on this album, like that, like the congas on um, Under the Fallen Sky or like the part at the end of From Silver Lake where he's singing one set of lines and the background singers are singing another another set of lines. Like, oh, yeah, I love that part. That feels that feels post-apocalyptic. Like you're saying it's like this is like both weird and dreary and dark but like angelic at the same time and is just that's not that's way more than just a folk musician playing guitar or piano right and certainly certainly he was here the other day but he only came to say that he can't breathe I like that line, um, you know, on his way across that sea, no man can measure, because it actually makes me think that like maybe these people are living in a world that's something has happened and we've we've actually lost all ability to to like make maps. So you don't even know how big the world is anymore. Like, hell yeah, you know, mighty. Maybe he was the first flat earther. I don't know. (laughs) Um, uh, But no, it's, there's all these like really like pretty heady moments and it it can, you know, it can certainly like, he can certainly rock when he feels like it. Uh, So 
looking into you, have you ever had a, have you ever gone back to like try and check out a house you used to live in? That's, that's actually the one song on the record that, that suddenly does not feel like, um, it's totally out of time to me. Like, cause he talks about like hearing the highway whistle and whine and like suddenly I'm picturing a guy in 1972 in California, like going back to look at an apartment that he'd lived in five years before that, you know? And, um, I, I don't mean that in any kind of negative way cause it doesn't really take me out of anything. It's just, you know, to me that kind of like that song really sort of ramps up kind of into like the, the big finish before taking the record home in a way like yeah it feels pretty epic and um and great pedal steel on that song too that I'm, I'm probably just I'm really leaning heavily into like yeah yeah that's great yeah that's great recording them out of time is like a, a process that I'm like needing to organize in my mind especially now that we're like self-quarantined in our homes and all that like but I've I, for example I recorded the the episode about holdout with the guy who wrote the Rolling Stone review for holdout and it was a pretty critical Rolling Stone review, and and you're like, man, I feel bad. Why why did I spend so much time speaking in critical terms about this thing that I actually do like? You know, if if everything's great, then nothing's great. Exactly. And you know, just because, yeah, I mean, like, if if you're really a fan of something, like, I think you can kind of like go go deep into it, have strong opinions about it. Like, it makes the things you love, uh, you know, even more important to you. And, uh, I think that's, you know, you don't just want like total blind, uh, you know, chanting of the name over and over again or something. What has to be said though, and you've kind of alluded to it is that this one does manage to be 10 songs that do feel like they belong together and kind of avoids dipping down into anything that is easy to be overly critical about, at least for me. Whereas even some of the other ones, which are albums I love, they do, they they get a little more into that territory. This one, it's kind of like, and it's someone's first album. It's like hard for me to, to really quibble it with it, you know? Oh, it's, it's all killer, no filler. And, um, I, I say that in the most, uh, you know, most serious way possible. Cause it's, uh, it's not really a laugh a minute as a record. Um, I feel like that song is sort of about, I always kind of took it to be sort of like about like your, your kind of journey, like early in life, you know, in sort of like a middle-class Western existence where you, you know, you're kind of figuring out what you're going to do. Maybe some people are going to college. In his case, he's like bumming around, you know, being a songwriter, trying to make it, that kind of thing. Like, which is, you know, it's sort of a life path that I can relate to. And, and I've kind of been on the same, you know, kind of scuffling around in the same way for my whole adult life, really. Yeah. Do, you um, mind, do you mind if I ask how old you are? I'm 35. Cool. I'm 36. All right. 80s babies. Um, yeah, just a couple a couple of millennials talking about an album from 1972. It's perfectly natural. Just let it happen <laughs> to you. Um, you know, I, I like how that song is, uh, you know, sort of like thinking about like, you know, you first go out on your own, some bad apartment, and then, you know, like, I guess just sort of like figuring out a life in music in a way. That's kind of how I've always meant it or, you know. That's yeah. how I thought it was. And in a way, it sort of made sense that maybe he's talking about Bob Dylan there as sort of like this model that, that all of those people were sort of like, like he presented a path to them, 
that like, yeah. oh, well, I could, I could do this because of that. And, you know, I, I know that I've certainly felt that way about people. Like when you see, you know, you see kind of the, the way their career works or the way they approach the work itself, like you can see something for yourself in that. Yeah, they, they, it's, it's like I'm a white male in my 30s. And so I have those examples where it's like you kind of need to see something embodied to then have permission to be like, oh, I can go do a version of that. And it makes you understand like these conversations around like representation in movies and things like that because people have to see. Oh, it's so important. You have to see a version. You have to see a version of what you want to do actually doing it in some form to kind of feel like you can do it. It's And also, too, it really like it goes to show you also – how visionary the people are who are doing it for themselves with not seeing any examples of it. Yeah. You know, like that's even more remarkable and amazing. Well, in my like early twenties, taking this song very literally and getting super into the full Jackson Brown discography, I took like a road trip down the California coast back to Southern California where I lived to like visit some family, see some friends and everything. And I went back my, by my old house that I lived in and the, like kind of suburbs outside of Los Angeles and oh, wow. was like, and I'm like listening to, to this album on the way there and like creating this moment for myself where I'm listening to looking into you as I like pull into the neighborhood and like, I'm going to go over there and see who lives there now. And I'm going to talk to them. <laughs> and like, I get to the house and the house they'd installed like a really dark metal screen on it. So you couldn't see through it. And like, I knock <laughs> on that thing. It's like clangs as I knock on it. Then someone opens it. I can just see their like silhouette. And I was like, Hey, I used to live here. I was wondering if I could like just talk, like catch up or whatever. And the guy just like looked at me and just said, no, and just swung it shut. <laughs> and I was like, God damn it. They were having none of it. Yeah, I was like, haven't you heard Haven't you heard the first Jackson Brown album, man? This is supposed to be a really big moment for me. But In the film of my life, this is important. Yeah, I was like creating my own soundtrack for this big moment, and I guess he gave me a different moment. I could have written about that, or, or uh, I guess I did hang on to it. That's great. So you kind of spoke about looking into you as like this, it's kind of building up to something and rock me on the water, I think like delivers on what that's doing. Yeah. Like, um, that was, you know, early on, that was my favorite song on the record, um, is rock me on the water. And I still really like it. I love the gospel piano on there. And that's like, that's a pretty like important element of like my band, Our, our piano player, Jeremy is, uh, um, really, really great at that style of playing, and there aren't very many people who uh, who are doing that these days. So I'm, I'm always very grateful to have him around because he's he's kind of got the chops under his hands to do that. But cool, um, yeah, man, like "Rock Me on the Water" is a really, really heavy one for me, and it, it still is. Like it's just kind of one of those songs that's been it's been a favorite for years and years and years, and th- that's one that I knew, you know, from the radio because it was kind of one you would hear on classic rock radio for a bit as well yeah. it's another which is one pretty that, unlikely a very strange song to be played on the radio when it comes right down to it i think i think what he sneaks he kind of sneaks by with on some of these songs is like give it a a real hook like rock me on the water what he sings there rock me on the water sister will you soothe my fever it to you in that package you're kind of getting everything else about those songs that is has 
a whole lot of substance and it doesn't just like fill in the space between the choruses you sing along to on FM radio. Yeah. And, uh, also like how sparse that song is like, you know, dynamically it's kind of all over the place and it's, it's so rare to hear something that naked on the radio, even if it's not the whole song, like you still have like a solid minute where I think it's just piano and voice. That was also one of my favorite songs. And I think, so I, I got into Jackson Brown through my dad, who you told your story of how your dad found him. My dad yeah. was, my dad was like working like a sales route that had him driving around Los Angeles a lot. And I think the pretender had come out and he oh, got cool. into the, he got into the pretender first. And like, you think about your dad's experience and my dad's experience. There's like nothing better than when you find a musician who you love, who's already like four albums in, and you're like, you don't, you didn't just get one album brought into your life, you just got five albums brought into your life because you now get to go backwards. You don't just have to wait for the next yeah. ones. You have all of it. That's like the idea that you find this stuff at the Pretender and then go backwards is awesome. But I know that in my sure. dad's process, in my dad's process of going backwards, "Rock Me on the Water" became a song that he fell in love with and played a lot, and everything it was a song that I like can remember hearing in my childhood even before getting into this album myself in my teens. So this was uh, like uh, JB was a guy around, around your house a lot then when, when you were growing up. Yeah, definitely. And, yeah. And yeah. I think I, around, I think around the time that I'm alive and looking East came out, those albums, like my dad had those CDs. It was kind of like peak CD buying. Uh, oh yeah. It was life. 1993 or something, right? Yeah. Most of what I heard of the old ones were honestly a greatest hits album that I had. And, and, the process of like getting into all of them individually, I'm actually really glad was a thing I did on my own. Honestly, in its own weird way, because I want to love these songs forever. I like am protective about how often I listen to them. Like I'll take like sure I'll take like a year long break <laughs> without listening to it, so that I get give myself the gift of coming back to it. You know, there's so much out there that like it's kind of overwhelming to think that like there's so much being made that like you could listen to music for the rest of your life and not hear all of it. And like that kind of bothers me on some level, but at the same time, you know, it gives you a lot to do in the year that you're taking off between your favorite records, you know? Yeah. And, and yeah, I know what you mean, but like it, it always kind of, uh, this album in particular, it always sort of, uh, it kind of resets everything for me whenever I hear it, you know, it, it, the world slows down a little bit. I can breathe a little deeper. It it does something to me that, you know, all of my favorite music does. The last track on this album is a literal farewell. What do you think of my opening farewell as a song and as the last song on your first album? I mean, it you, you'd be hard-pressed to do better. Um, yeah. But that also, like, I think sort of, like, reinforces, like, the apocalypse themes, too. Like, it, it feels very much like, you know, this woman out in the desert somewhere like who maybe hasn't seen people in days you know yeah and uh yeah it just it feels like something it just right after something awful has happened and uh, the world is like putting itself back together the conversation we were having earlier about production and sort of the subtle things instruments are doing and everything this one just feels like it feels like five instruments doing their own sparse different things all coming together like it's it's really masterful and it's so uh everything is really intentional like nothing is happening on accident with all of that like that baseline and you'll soon be gone that's just as well this is my opening farewell 
just incredible. Like the way it sort of like runs as a counter to a lot of stuff and just all the moves that everyone was doing on this record. They're, they're just, they're perfect. You know, the kind of thing we haven't gotten into is that like Jackson Brown was a, a thing, but you know, he was like in the nitty gritty dirt band for a minute. And then like he played for Tom rush and then he was like, he was, you know, he was like a known staple of like the troubadour scene and all of that. And, you know, people were, recording his songs and all of that kind of stuff. And that's, uh, I mean, he was definitely, uh, definitely working and like building toward a thing for sure. Right. And so he has harmonies on this album by David Crosby. Like you don't have that. You don't have that unless you're already doing some stuff. You get, you get Cros on there. You get Clarence white on guitar. Like it's, it's pretty crazy. Um, I mean, you know, David Lindley has yet to sort of make an appearance, but, um, to me, those first five albums, uh, there's a lot of his music I like. I don't want to like diminish what he does in the 80s and 90s, and I kind of haven't put my brain there yet because I've only the only one of these I've recorded from that is is Holdout. But the first five albums are so amazing to me, and they all kind of feel like they belong together. And then the one sure. kind of weird little thing in that is that David Lindley's not on this album because he's like a a constant on all those. Right, and I mean it is kind of one of the things that really differentiates it, and I think it makes it. It, it honestly makes it a little more solemn. Like there, there isn't really like the, the playing is amazing on it, but like really with the exception of like the guitar solo on Dr. My Eyes, there really aren't any, like there are no like kind of fireworks happening, like no flashy stuff, you know, yeah. uh, as opposed to like the Lindley thing where it's like, you've got this like great lap steel happening and all this other stuff. Um, Uh, and yeah, I kind of wonder what it would be like with him on that record. Like I, I don't, um, but I, I don't really know how you could really outdo it as it is. Like it might not jump up and down, but it's just perfect. Yeah. If anything, I guess it's like, it's kind of cool to have this piece that existed before that next chapter came, right. It kind of gives you something new on, on for every man. And then you get like David Lindley at peak on the on late for the sky and yeah that's kind of like the full flowering of of sort of what i think of as sort of being like the jackson brown sound that you know uh you know it's the it's the sound that launched a million dawes including dawes (laughs) what about the record cover what do you think of that oh man it's great the like the water bag yeah love it what do you what do you when you refer to this album what do you call it um, I always called it saturate before using, but I, I think I, I'm doing that incorrectly. Um, I know I, I do too. I do too. And I, I kind of, for these purposes, because I think it was officially just released as self-titled. I've been like yeah. in an, in an official capacity calling it self-titled for like the purposes of his discography. But, um, I think that you can just call it saturate before using now. I think that kind of like became a thing and that's fine. Well, you know, I want to I want to respect JB's wishes here. So, I mean, I, I know that he was kind of like he was afraid people would think that's what the album was called. And I don't think he wanted it to be called that. But, um, you know, it's it's sort of like calling the the album the White Album. No one calls that self-titled, you know. <laughs> right. I think Late for the Sky is his best album cover, but I think this is the most iconic. This is yeah, like... it's 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 pretty wonderful. Like, and and I, I think that like the you know the original pressing, it was actually like a burlap bag that it came in, which is even cooler. Right on. Nice. Well, thanks so much. Anything else? Any uh, parting thoughts? Uh, no, but thank you for talking to me, and uh, I'm probably gonna go put it on right now. Yeah. Thanks for a good uh, hour long break in the 
in the quarantine. I, it's uh, I don't really get to talk about this uh, this record or uh, or honestly uh, Jackson Brown enough. So thanks a whole lot. You can follow him on Twitter at William underscore Matheny, M-A-T-H-E-N-Y. And you can find more information about his music at WilliamMatheny.com. As long as I can do all the driving myself I won't be handing the wheel off to anybody else And if the station's tuning in, I'll turn the radio on I can roll down the window and stick out my arm Got idle hands that need a feeder Got some secrets I've been keeping And I don't hate the way I'm feeling Though I probably should But it's alright for now Set him up, show and play, walk in the floor Like it did last night and the night before Then I'll jump on the phone and tell a couple good lies then I'll tell him to myself until the end of the night. I've been living on Adderall, fingernails and alcohol. It's not a prison if you build your own walls without faith. When you're holding a hammer, it all looks like a nail. I've got a Christian name and a life of sin. Again. And I can't think of anything but how it should have been When I can't run from the silence the quiet closes in When I can't run from the silence the quiet closes in Statues all covered in snow And all the service station people with somewhere to go And I've been east of Eden with the engine light on Then I pulled into the city like a great false dawn It's just the promised land calling just the nightshade that's falling And I better start crawling Till I'm able to stand But I'm alright for now 